Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. Romans 5.12 Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Matthew 26.33 You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. John 18.17 For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 3.19 This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Meg. Let's pray. Father, as we spend this first quarter deeply diving into the nature of our sin and our fall before you, and how you came to rescue us, how you came to absorb into yourself all the wounds and the wrongs of this broken world upon the cross. Spirit, set some free today. Deliver today. There is so much brokenness in our souls today, not because of what we have done, but because of what has been done to us. Would you redirect our attention to you today? Would you fill us with a sense of your goodness and mercy? Even now, as a broken people, may we humbly receive your gentleness, your good shepherd's heart, your love towards us. And I pray that the community called Neighbors and the church, not just Neighbors, but the church here in the city of San Diego, would revive and awaken that we would live our lives in such a way that the kingdom of God would break forth into this world, make this a thin place. Let there be deliverance. Let there be transformation. Let there be healing. Amen. <laughs> Sophia. <laughs> Love that little lady. So like I told you guys, I've been gone. Uh, last Friday, actually, I found myself in a little country cemetery uh, deep in the south of Arkansas, Okalona, Arkansas, population 158 people, where my grandparents were born and raised, met when they were 10 years old, and lived together for 80 years as a married couple. Of course, I was surrounded in that moment by gravestones and by family as we were saying our final farewells to my grandmother, my granny. We buried her. I had received a call a number of days before from my mom that granny had fallen, broken her hip. She was recovering from a broken hip and had managed to avoid COVID until she got to the hospital. And she got COVID in the hospital and was not going to make it due to respiratory failure. So I had planned on going, actually I had tickets booked to go in March with a journal, go down there to be with Pop and Granny and just write out the history of our family, write out the history of their marriages, just journal straight from their mouths. Unfortunately, my grandmother, uh, I booked tickets, I moved those tickets up, got on an airplane, and unfortunately, she passed while I was on the runway stuck in a snowstorm uh, in Denver, Colorado. 
And so the questions that I wanted to ask Granny uh, are going to have to wait until the kingdom comes. And I've got to say, there are so many questions. And I've got to say that that's what illness and death and funerals prompt in all of us. There's a very sobering effect to one's psyche watching a corpse being kissed by loved ones. It just jars you out of the carnival of distractions that is our modern high-paced life. And it drops you right into the deeps of our finitude and the finality of death. And so as you stand in a cemetery surrounded by loved ones and gravestones, the cardboard, Instagrammed, mostly meaningless things that we all are basing our lives on, they feel silly as you're standing next to this coffin in which a person lays that you loved and no matter what they accomplished in this life, for good or for ill, their life is now over. And all that is left is shared hugs and tear-soaked Kleenexes and this very uncomfortable awareness that the only certain thing in my future is a coffin and boxes of tear-soaked Kleenexes. And that looming question that gnarly, exposing, layer-peeling-away question. Why do we cease to exist in this life? Why sickness? Why death? And so Jesus, our King, our Master, under whom we apprentice ourselves, and the sacred texts that formed his view of reality, they all answer in one accord. Why sickness? Why death? Why the ceasing of existence in this life? We die because of sin. Very simple, straightforward message that so many of us, including myself, forget moment by moment. To Adam, to Adam, to dirt in whom God had breathed life. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. There's a line from the 16th century Book of Common Prayer, and it reads, In the midst of life, we are in death. God's warning to the first humans in the book of Genesis has proven true for every human throughout all of history. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, to this point, we have been framing our studies on sin from the Bible's perspective that you and I are responsible for sin we choose to transgress against God. Sin is something that we do as free agents, as volitional beings created by God. We reject our royal vocation as priests in God's cosmic creation. We give in to the beast of sin, diminishing our humanness and acting like animals. We choose to rebel against God as our sole authority. We deny our limitations and our creatureliness in these vain attempts to be our own gods. And yet, the biblical perspective on sin also presents sin as something that has happened to us over which we had no control. 
Sin is something we do, and sin is something that has been done to us. Sin is a sickness from which we need healing. Ultimately, sin is a death from which we need delivered. Now, I know that as Enlightenment-trained, analytical, rational philosophers of the modern Western world, when I say sin is something you do and sin is something that has been done to you, we all respond, well, Dan, such a thing cannot be. What is it? It's got to be one or the other. That doesn't make any rational sense. Is Is sin something we do or is sin something done to us? And the answer is it is actually both. Welcome to the wonderful and complex world of Christian theology. (laughs) If we are, which we do here at Neighbors, we let the Bible form, as Jesus did, our understanding and view of reality, then we must become very comfortable with a series of tensions and paradoxes. Orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, that is, right belief that accords or aligns itself with the Bible— is actually a network of tensions. And these tensions don't contradict each other. They actually pull each other and hold each other in a whole. Think of a trampoline. For a trampoline to be like really bouncy and awesome, all the springs have to be pulling equally around all the way of the trampoline. Have we all been on the trampoline? It was our neighbor's trampoline. It was about 800 years old. It only had like four springs left on it. You couldn't bounce on it. It was absolutely terrible. Christian theology requires all of these springs all the way around the trampoline of orthodoxy to pull it tight, to make it true, to make it robust. Let me give you a few examples. God is three persons, separate, but one essence, tensions. If you lose the tensions of the Trinity, you lose Christianity. Jesus was fully, 100% God incarnate, embodied in flesh. Jesus was fully, 100% a human, just like you and I, tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you lose those paradoxical tensions of the teachings and revelation of Jesus from the scriptures, you lose who Jesus is. You're not following the actual Jesus that existed in history. The Bible itself was written 100% by God, the Holy Spirit, inspired by his breath, and 100% by the hands of humans within their cultures, within their personalities, with all their faults and patterns. The Bible is heavenly, but it's also got a lot of dirt under its fingernails. If you lose those tensions, you lose the nature of the Bible. So when we discuss sin and we think about our own sin, sin is 100% something that we have done. We are responsible for it. We will be judged for it. Sin is also 100% something that has happened to us from which we all need merciful healing. And so for this final session on sin, next week we're going to be turning a corner. Weston's going to be teaching on grace. Everybody's going to love him because it's going to be this beautiful sermon on mercy and love and grace. For this final session, what we're going to do is just dig in here for just a moment on the nature of sin as something that is tragic that's happened to you and I. Sin has happened to you. You are, I am, we are victims under the tyranny of sin. And so Paul, as Meg read for us, explained to the Roman church, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Listen, as modern Western scientific rational thinkers, the Bible is not attempting to explain the biology or the epigenetic effect of sin and how it is transferred from one biological being to the next. 
all the Bible is saying is making this categorical, theological, spiritual statement that we, as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, the first sinners, are born already dying because of sin. The theological term for this is original sin. Sin, because of original sin, in which we are born, has corrupted and polluted everything in all of creation. There is nothing that it doesn't touch, nothing that it doesn't taint. It decays and destroys everything. Sin's corrosive effect is diseasing the whole of our beings, even as we're sitting here in our chairs, eating our kale and riding our Pelotons. Sin results in both physical deterioration of our bodies and an emotional and psychological splintering of our minds. Let's focus on the body here for just a moment. Our bodies actually do not function as they were designed to function due to this inherited sin from Adam and Eve. We, even now, are weakening, we're breaking, we are diseasing. There's nothing we can do about it. This is what has happened to us. There's no way to escape this plight. We are dying right now because of sin. Maybe the most important theologian in all of church history, I would, I would put him in the number one most important theologian in all of church history, St. Augustine, sophisticated, brilliant thinker. He illustrated the decay of our bodies by a series of contrasts. What Augustine did is he observed that there were certain humans that were endowed with physical abilities that superseded others. And Augustine saw these abilities in other human beings as marks of what we all once were. He created this list of seemingly supernatural abilities that certain humans had that we had lost, most of us, due to the decay in our bodies of sin. And you would expect an observant and sophisticated theologian like Augustine to, to note like human attributes like greater physical strength, like the Olympians that we're watching, or higher intelligence or unique life longevity as marks of what we all once were. No, this is hilarious. This is absolutely... Read this quote with me. This is what Augustine observed in people and, and, and considered considered amazing. We know too that humans are differently constituted from one another and some have rare and remarkable powers of doing with their bodies, doing with their bodies what others could never do and indeed scarcely believe when they hear of others doing. Check this out. Augustine said, some people can move their ears either one at a time or both together. Some without moving the head can bring the hair down on their forehead and move the whole scalp back and forth at will. Guys, everybody stop looking at the quote. I can wiggle my ears and move my scalp. My kids think it's the most amazing gift I have. Some, Augustine goes on, says, so accurately mimic the voices of birds and beasts and other men that unless they are seen, no one knows the difference. And then this is my favorite. Some people produce at will such musical sounds from their behind without any smell that they seem indeed to be singing from that region. <laughs> what in the world? Honestly, you guys, I read this, I heard this quote and I read this quote and it made me laugh so hard in the midst of like just studying death and sin and being at a funeral. I was like, I, I just need the, I need the comedic relief. <laughs> According to Augustine, the real tragedy of sin is that only some of us can wiggle our ears now. I still have that gift. And apparently some people could produce songs from their behinds that didn't smell. Absolutely incredible. So this little bit of humor, friends, it is, it's helping us to, to wrestle with and grasp the reality that, that we can't evade, that we are grave-bound from birth, and that right now, this onset that some of us feel more than others, the aches and pains, the disease, the decay, something sin has done to us, physically. Now, let's talk here for a moment 
about what sin has done to us emotionally, and this is maybe more important, deep within our psychology, deep within the volitional will of our being, because sin has resulted in what I can only call a mental illness from which we need healing. When I say mental illness, I'm not necessarily referring to the rampant anxiety and depression that is just crushing this generation. Although I will say the anxiety, the loneliness, the depression, I think those are all part and parcel of our separation from God and what sin has done to our brains and our bodies. When I say a mental illness from which we need healing, I'm referring to more of an unaware this irrational insanity that we all live into sin has caused us to be born believing lies and non-realities about reality. We are born not knowing the depth of the stories that we are weaving for ourselves that do not align with reality at all. We are born not understanding the depth of our own deception. We are born literally committed to creating and controlling our own universe, which is impossible, by the way. But we do that with our whole life, all of our might, even though it's irrational and insane to do so. We are unalterably convinced about what brings flourishing, even if what we think is bringing flourishing is destroying us. This is what sin does to us. And the funny thing is, is I, as the preacher, can stand up here and say to you, this is what you're doing, all the while thinking, I'm not doing that myself. And you, the listener, can sit there saying, well, pfft, boy, do I wish so-and-so could be hearing this right now. They're just crazy. They've lost their mind due to sin. When we all have lost our minds and are living this insane, irrational commitment to our own vision of flourishing that is destroying us. The prophet Jeremiah said as much. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure, healing language. Who can understand it? The heart, according to the Hebrew sages, is the seat of our decision-making will, where we make the deepest decisions. The heart is the deepest emotional desire and driver of the human being. And we are born with hearts and deep emotional desires and drivers that are malformed. Augustine would say they are disordered. They are no longer under the order of God and warped due to sin. Our desire-driven decision-making ability to obey God's vision for flourishing is diseased. Now think of this. I, I, my kids aren't like this. Thank God. I'm so grateful for our, my kids. They're so full of grace for us as parents. But there are certain teenagers that think that their parents, they, they're just convinced their parents know absolutely nothing about life. <laughs> nothing at all. Did you guys, do you guys know what the actual word sophomore means? Sophomore comes from two Greek words, sophos or safihas, wisdom, and moros, moron. Sophomore means wise moron. <laughs> Did you guys know that? And so wise morons think that we have it all figured out while we're actually acting foolishly. And what sin does is it entrenches us in this immovable sense that right now what I believe about the world and my decisions and my behavior is right, even if I'm tragically wrong. And here's the scariest part for us. In the secular West, for the first time in human history since the resurrection, the secular West is purposely celebrating this, celebrating our separation from God with the mantra, if it feels good and it's right in your heart, how or who could say that it is wrong? How could something feel so right be so certain in the way that I feel about things, how dare you say that there's something damaging in what I feel is right and true? This is the irrational, 
insanity in which all of us are trapped. And so we, day by day, draw a vision for human flourishing from these diseased hearts, malformed, and we base our decisions on it. And here's the thing. It's insanity because it makes no rational sense. If we actually understand that our creator intends our highest flourishing and joy, St. Ignatius would actually say, sin is our unbelief that God has our highest happiness in mind. Sin is our unbelief that God has our highest happiness in mind. It's insane for us to continue to rebel against this God, rebel against his will, being convinced of this, this reality. And it is this, this is the, the tensioning of the trampoline. Because we are born into this, that's why we rebel against God, and we're held responsible for it. And it is this insanity that makes us diminish our humanity and act like animals. It's, it's this irrationality that causes us to abandon our vocation as royal priests. And even as Jesus followers, which I would assume most of you are in here, even as people who have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, save me from my sin, we continue in the patterns afflicted by this warped emotional, mental psychology. This is why I had us read Peter at the beginning of this session. Peter is a great example of somebody so close to Jesus, following Jesus, that was irrationally losing his mind, committed to his own vision of human flourishing as a follower of Jesus. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. My heart is cured, Jesus. I am your follower. I am your friend. I am your confidant. I am your champion. And then a little girl says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? No, 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 no. And we too, though committed in our minds, this incurable heart over and over and over again through our attitudes, our anxieties, our actions all through the day, deny Jesus. The only difference, if you're here today brought with a friend, the only difference between somebody who says, I'm a Christian and a follower of Jesus, I'm a believer, and an unbeliever is a believer says, I believe Jesus raised from the dead, and I am progressively being made more and more aware of how actually even my desires and my decisions are being driven by something other than God. And an unbeliever would say, I don't want that. I want to continue going off of my own feelings internally. Paul's words for us ring true. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. Man, is that hard to read in this cultural moment. <laughs> for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Even the great St. Paul, the greatest church planter in all of history, would say he was a helpless victim of this corrupting and deceiving power of sin. And so we turn a corner now. We all are falling apart physically, emotionally, mentally, and volitionally. It's what's happening to us. And there's nothing we can do about it ourselves. And so God did. God did something about this for us. The great spiritual masters, two weeks from now, we're going to look at this in depth. The great spiritual masters, they talk about four stages of Christian growth. Awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. Awakening, purgation, Illumination and union. Awakening is the stage of beginnings. Awakening is the moment when we are made aware of our sin, when we realize, whoa, I have been living this delusion. I have been living committed to my own feelings as fact, 
and creating my own universe. And awakening is a moment where somehow, some way, the Spirit of God, in the midst of a Sunday morning sermon, maybe listening to a podcast, maybe a conversation with a friend, maybe reading a scripture, maybe singing a song, maybe stuck in traffic, somehow the Spirit just opens our eyes and we find ourselves saying, I was blind, but suddenly I can see something was tragically wrong with the way I was living my life. Purgation, purgation follows in illumination and union, much more on that in the coming weeks. Those come as we follow Jesus, as we accord our lives to the way of Jesus. And so this awakening moment for all of us is like a diagnosis. And diagnoses are terrifying. Diagnoses are hard to hear. Diagnosis can be awful. But it's so wonderful when you've known that something was off, something was out of place, something wasn't working right, and then the doctor says to you, oh, it's this. This has been causing all of the issues. Awakening is the beginning, friends. And the awareness of sin that something has tragically happened to us, this is the beginning of our healing. Until we all can find ourselves saying that I have been living in this insane narrative that I've made up, we are helpless to be healed. But the moment we find ourselves acknowledging, becoming more aware, becoming more certain, seeing, whoa, I've made decisions, I've done things, I've said things, committed to this insane vision of life that doesn't accord with reality, this is the beginning of our healing. And God is intervening. He steps in. He comes to us in our sickness, and he gives us this diagnosis. This is why Jesus claimed to be God embodied among us, saying, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And so for this final session on sin, I want to encourage us to look at sin through the lens this morning of being a victim to its corrosive power. And when you begin to do that, it shifts the way you think about Christianity. Christianity is no longer, if you are a victim of sin, if you are diseased with sin and that's the diagnosis, Christianity is no longer a set of rules to be followed to get right with God. Christianity is a full-on rescue project. Our lives, when we look at our lives through this lens of we have been victimized by the tyranny of sin, we realize God doesn't throw us on the junk pile because we've been disordered, diseased, and broken. God comes to us in a salvaging restoration project to bring us all to right belief and right behavior. Friends, hear this today. The great hope of every human being on this planet, your coworkers this week, the students with whom you will interact, the professors under whom you will be taught, the family with whom you will eat food, the friends with whom you will go and get drinks, the only and greatest hope for humanity begins with this awakening. And true happiness and true flourishing is not going to be found. We need these things as vitamins, but it will not be accomplished through our sophisticated psychological therapies, our justice initiatives, our political processes, our ingenuity, our, techn our technology. Our hope is for God to continually step in, intervene, awaken, and restore us to health and right thinking. Psalm 139, search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. This is our hope. In fact, the word translated saved in our New Testament is sometimes translated healed, one and the same. Now, Paul, Paul had experienced this healing right after the words of Romans 7, the civil war that we're all enduring right now. I desire to do the good, the desire, the good to do, the, uh, 
the desire that I want to do good that I can't do and I keep doing evil, all that kind of stuff that we're all dealing with. Paul, right after that, having been awakened to his terminal condition, he was utterly aware of his incapability for self-repair and self-restoration. And so he cried out at the end of Romans chapter 7, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so now we turn to Jesus. As we read the Gospels and we read the accounts of Jesus's life, what we are seeing in each of those pages is God's intervention and diagnosis. We are seeing God's awakening of humanity, and we are also seeing his means of healing and deliverance from this disease of sin. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Two things to carry us into communion this morning that Jesus does. He teaches and he heals. He teaches and he heals. He teaches and he heals. Jesus' teachings awaken us. It is Jesus' words that the longer I have read the man's teachings, I find more and more disorienting and jarring because they rip me out of the carnival of distractions and the self-made life that I have made for myself. His words kindly, gently, and perfectly penetrate the insanity that is my mind. And his teachings are always turning me back to truth. His teachings are always turning me towards his infinite grace, towards his gentle mercy, towards his sovereignty over all things, towards his love for me and for all humans. What Jesus' teachings do when we read through the Gospels, when we read through his followers' accounts of how they applied the crucifixion, the resurrection, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, when we read through the New Testament, when we read through the Old Testament, what the teachings of God do for us is they make us more and more aware of our sinful beliefs and behaviors. And this is not just a one-time event for us as Christians. Jesus' interventions occur throughout our whole life. Christianity, friends, is a lifelong process of Jesus awakening us to layers of sin, layers of insanity that diminish our flourishing in him, and then calling us to trust him with those things for forgiveness and power and transformation. A couple weeks from now, we will talk about how Martin Luther said, all of life is a life of repentance. Daily, we wake up and our king comes to us in his teachings and in his ways to deliver us from this mental insanity. And here's the linchpin. Here's the trampoline. We can choose to respond or reject those interventions moment by moment. Sin is something done to us that Jesus has come to deliver us from. And sin is something that we do, that we are responsible for turning from and tr trusting him for our transformation. And so today by way of just personal application, wherever you find yourself on this journey of life, wherever you are right now in this moment, if there is a semblance of curiosity about Jesus, obviously you're at church, well done. If there's a desire to understand him, you're sitting listening to some guy yak about the Bible, well done. You're responding to him, but know that that is Jesus working in your heart to draw him to yourself. And check this out. Where there are teachings of Jesus, you're reading along in your Bible and you're just like, Oh, that's nice. Mm, I love that. Come to me, all ye who are weary, and I will give you rest. Yes, give me that rest, Jesus. That resonates. St. Ignatius would say, tend to that. 
That's the Holy Spirit drawing you into the reality of the kingdom of God that we as people of God live out of rest as a state of existence. Tend to that, water that, meditate on that, pray through that, let that build you up. But not only when you're reading along in Jesus's teachings and you're like, oh yes, that resonates. Where you find yourself going, record skip, what did he just say? I resist that. No, Jesus, I reject whatever it is that you just, blessed are the persecuted, are you crazy? No, what? Blessed are the poor? No, I don't think so. I don't understand any of these teachings. Which is like, for me, like at this point, 80% of Jesus' words, I'm like, Ugh. The points where we find ourselves resisting him is where he's coming into our little creation that we've made, and he's saying, mm, that's not real. <laughs> um, that's not the way I designed humanity to live. <laughs> Love your enemies. Uh, I resist that, Jesus. That's because you're committed to this delusion that everybody should love you, and you don't have to love anybody else, and that you do nothing wrong. <laughs> Where you find resistance to the teachings of the Bible is where God is forming your soul in reality. Friends, that is where the depth of formation happens. Christianity is not a sophisticated self-care program. It is the utter transformation of your entire being into the likeness of Christ Jesus, a deliverance from the delusion and insanity of a mental illness that has wrecked us all and wrecked this world. And so... We live our lives under the authority of the scriptures within the context of a community like this where we gather on Sunday mornings and throughout houses all through the week to support one another in love and truth, to call each other out where we're being delivered, where we see people being delivered, to hold each other accountable, to love each other, to support and pray for each other through the power of the Spirit. And for the rest of our lives as Christians, Jesus is showing us where certain desires are still disordered, where our commitments have been misplaced, and where we are wrong. And our only responsibility in every one of those moments under his infinite grace, there will always be forgiveness for every time we choose to continue in our resistance. There will only be mercy and forgiveness is to receive his love and grace and follow him forward in truth. Jesus not only taught, though, we're almost done. He also healed. And this is maybe a spin on the healings and the miracles of the gospels that maybe none of you have heard yet. But I think it's super important. Jesus came as the great healing physician. And so we're looking forward to the cross. We're making our journey to the cross. We're going to be arriving there in about two weeks, looking in depth at what the cross did. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and then the following empowerment poured out by the Holy Spirit is where we are indwelt and transformed. He absorbed into himself the disease and the decay and the death of our sin on the cross, and then he rose from the grave as our source of eternal healing. So salvation, remember this. And this is where, like, as a pastor, and you find yourself standing by coffins and burying your grandmother, you just find yourself saying, you know what this is all about? My granny's going to raise from the dead. That's what salvation is. When all this is done, all the insanity, all the politics, all the technology, all the plague, all, when it's all done, salvation is the fact that some will rise from the grave to eternal life. And some will rise from the grave having rejected and resisted him right to the grave. That's what this whole thing is about the promise of our physical bodies being delivered from decay. And though we go into graves, the promise of the resurrection is that we are going to raise into these everlasting embodied realities here on earth as it is in heaven. And God, in the miracles of Jesus while he was here, gives us glimpses of that total healing right here and now, like little, little parting of the curtain 
little, little wave markers and little signposts to that coming ultimate joy. As you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus healing people, what you're seeing are these little eruptions of the kingdom of God breaking into the world as it one day will be for all the followers of Jesus. So the paralyzed getting up and walking, the deaf hearing, the feverish and the leprous being made whole, these were the eruptions of Jesus' saving kingdom. And friends, he is still doing that today. Listen, I'm going to bring Mike up here in just a second because I want him to share something with you guys. We are part of a cohort of churches, community of leaders up and down the West Coast, really all across the nation that has been praying for revival and renewal for decades. I've been praying for revival for decades in the church. And we're beginning to see the eruptions of it. And you know what it looks like? It looks like people radically pursuing holiness, radically waking up to like, I've been justifying this particular behavior in my life and I don't want to justify it anymore. When God begins to pour out his spirit and and thin the space between heaven and earth in a community of people, it is marked by radical repentance. It is marked by people saying, I want nothing but the presence of God. I want holiness. I want fullness. I want radical faith. People start doing crazy stuff. I'm going to go on the mission field. I'm going to share the gospel with my professor. I'm going to lose my promotion at work because I'm going, I'm, it just gets, things start getting crazy because people want Jesus more than they want anything else when the spirit begins to move. But not only that, oftentimes revival throughout the history of the church has been accompanied by literal inbreakings of miracles, literal inbreakings of healings. Dearest church, I will be the first to confess to you, I am the chief of cynics in this realm. I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I have heard and seen the stories, and they've all been belly flops. Not all, but some have been belly flops. I, too, have grown cynical in my many years of praying for healing and not seeing it. But we absolutely my wife and I had this conversation that we're done pastoring cynics. We want to pastor faith and belief. We want to pastor unbelievable, cry out, radical faith because God wants to break in, in this generation, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, the schisms, the relational tearing of society. God wants to establish his church as a holy people in the midst of this city where his kingdom is breaking in and it may be accompanied by Literal miracles. It's just this little glimpse where God says, see, I am really going to do this. That has happened in our community. I'm going to turn it over to you. And you're probably going to make me cry. And so Mike is going to come share a story from our group. And, uh, and then I'll come up and take us into communion. Good morning, church. Um, I don't, you know. I don't public speak too much, so I did half of COM 103 on Zoom, so bear with me. But uh, yeah, Dan invited me up here um, to kind of share my story and just my family situation in the last couple of years. Um, so of course, I'll bring us back to everyone's favorite month of reflection, March of 2020. Um, we all went into a pandemic, uh, started going into quarantine, and uh, my family was kind of like, okay, you know, this is the world is very disorienting for many of us at the moment. And um, I was, my dad was still working and both my parents had their jobs. So I was feeling good about the financial situation and there wasn't anything I was really concerned about besides staying healthy, of course, from COVID. 
Um, and we get a couple months into COVID and um, my dad's been going to, to the doctor. He's been having some bad asthma and um, we're just like, oh, okay, he hasn't had asthma since he was a kid. You know, it could just be some, some allergic reaction or something of sorts. And um, my dad comes and I just remember we're in the dining room and he, he's, him, and, him and my mom sit us down and I get a little scared because, you know, my, my family's, family's pretty sarcastic and we're not, you know, the most serious type. So, like, kind of these interactions were a little bit unusual. Um, and so I was thinking, man, like, I mean, so many people are getting laid off. Like, I'm thinking one of my parents lost their job or um, something like that. Uh, but my dad goes, hey, so I've been having some um, checkups over the last couple months. And, of course, you know, that asthma it ended up just being a fluke. It was just a random thing. Um, I they don't really know why I had it. Um, but when they were doing some blood work, they realized something a little bit unusual. Um, and I wanted to let you guys know now um, that I've been diagnosed with uh, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma called mantle cell lymphoma. Um, there is no cure for the cancer. Um, they've deemed that I am in stage four um, and that me actually going in for my asthma was somewhat of a miracle because it had nothing to do with the cancer. They just... They were actually very shocked that like that ended up going to the cancer and just his diagnosis in itself was just like, wow, like, thank you, Lord, for at least catching this before, you know, the worst. Um, and so my dad comes to me and he's like, you know, he's been in law enforcement for over 20 years, SWAT guy, like the toughest guy I know. Um, and he says, hey, we're going to get to stem cell treatment um, by January of 2021. It's going to happen. Like, I have 100% confidence that this is gonna, this is gonna work out, um, that we're gonna get to chemotherapy, we're gonna start off with that and everything's gonna, gonna work itself out. And you know, I, once my dad says something, I believe right away. I'm like, you know, it's gonna happen. Uh, and I was, we were so confident and just going as a family and um, we start doing the chemo and it stops working um, as cancer starts beating the chemotherapy. Uh, and they say, okay, now, you know, I've seen the commercials. They have these cancer pills now, these targeted therapies that, you know, well, of course, that will be the healing for his cancer. Um, and we start doing those. It works for about a month, and then my dad starts getting worse and worse. Um, and we get to, to January of 2021, and my dad's not looking great. Um, stem cell treatment is not going to be started because his cancer is going through his body rampant. Um, and it wouldn't be a safe procedure to perform in, um, at that time. Um, and so we, we keep going. Um, they pretty much say, now we're just going to try experimental things. You know, that's the next step. Uh, but we're really hopeful. Um, there's this new, you know, procedure. It's called CardiCell. It's pretty much like the genetic modification thing that we've heard where they, you know, alter your DNA. And, and we're saying, okay, this is going to be the one. It, has, it hasn't been approved for your cancer yet, but it's had 70 to 80% effective um, it's been 70-80% effective in other forms of cancer. This is going to be the one. This is going to be um, what saves your dad. And so I'm like, okay, you know, we're at UCSD, like with some of the smartest doctors in the world, like this is going to happen. Um, works for about a month, and then my dad's cancer wins again. Um, and I just remember uh, my mom breaking the news to me. Um, and actually, like, for some whatever reason, I don't usually write notes down, but... I really felt like that day was a day that I need to, to write something down for. Um, and I'm just seeing my dad, the strongest guy I know, crying on the couch. 
It was the first time I had seen him cry through his whole cancer journey. I had really seen that he had lost like hope that he was, it was gonna work. Um, and so I'll just share like the note that I wrote that day. It was August 28th of uh, 2021. Um, and I wasn't planning on sharing this, so it's kind of short and to the point, but uh, um, it says, mom lets you know that dad's cardio cell treatment didn't work. Um, dad cried, you cried, mom cried. Um, dad had a dream about people with Down syndrome enjoying life um, and heard throughout the dream, God works all things for good. Um, you are devastated right now, losing hope. Um, Lord, save me from my sorrows. Um, and we were, it, the dream was just random. He had had it the night before that he got the news about um, the Cardi sale failing. And I was like, wow, this, you know, this is good. God's trying to make me be joyful because my dad's gonna die. Like I, it, it didn't make sense at the moment. Um, and so we keep going. They start putting him back on just medications to keep the cancer at bay. And um, we get to November and I, well, before that even, I, I would say in October, I remember sitting on Zach's couch and um, I'm pretty kind of to myself about my emotions for the most part. Um, and Zach just, you know, is a good friend, just checking up on me, saying, you know, hey, how's, how are things going with your dad? And I straight up go, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think my dad's gonna make it till Christmas. You know, I'm praying for my dad to make it till Christmas. I just wanna enjoy the holiday season with him one more time. And I just wanna enjoy, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and just, hey, praise God if I can have that. Um, I've, you know, I've had such a good run with my dad. These are kind of the, the thought processes going through my head. And um, they say, hey, you know, we're gonna try one more clinical trial. Um, you know, in the beginning of November, there's seven people in LA that have done the trial. Um, you're gonna be the first in San Diego. You know, my, my dad's pretty much a celebrity at you know, UCSD at this point uh, because just he's doing things that no one's ever done before. Uh, and so they say, you know, there could be, like many of his medications, but this one was very unknown. There could be long-term neurological damage. You know, even if this works, you might never have your dad the same way you know him. Um, and yeah, we don't know what the percentages look like. There isn't any indication that this is gonna work. So that, of course, the same pattern that had followed um, was working for a good stretch. You know, my dad was getting stronger again, and I was like, okay, you know, thank you, Lord, that at least, you know, for Christmas, my dad's gonna be pretty healthy because it seemed like the treatment's working. Um, and so we had been shooting for stem cell in the beginning of 2022, but it was a very, you know, loose goal because, you know, of all the de devastating news we had had before. Um, and so my dad has a PET scan, and in the middle of December, and uh, my mom comes home one day, and she goes, um, hey, like, your dad got his results back from the PET scan, um, and it was really encouraging, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome, you know, there's, we're shooting for a 50% reduction in the cancer, like, you know, hopefully that worked out, um, and she goes, yeah, they actually um, said that there was no detectable signs of cancer in his body, um, that they could technically say that he's in remission, and I was just like, I mean, I'm cynic, analytical brain. I was like, I don't have a category for this one. Like, this just doesn't make sense. You know, my mom's like, we used to go to the Rock Church when I was a kid. So she's all like, who's the man? Jesus. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, let's do it. You know, like, I was like, I was saying Jesus to her too. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, let's go. Um, and so I like was, ah, and I, 
I guess I'll kind of sum it up saying is I didn't, you know, I don't have any explanation besides the Lord healed my dad. Um, there was divine healing, the things I had been praying for. Um, the community has been praying for, it happened. Um, yeah. So uh, thank you, Dan, for letting me share my story, but that's...